0: Our reading uh, for this week is Psalm 3. Uh, there's a fair bit of it, so, but it's worth paying careful attention to, to what it says. Now, the snake was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden?" The woman said to the snake, We may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say, You must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it, or you will die. You will not certainly die, the snake said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened And God said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree from which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? The woman said, The snake deceived me, and I ate. So the Lord God said to the snake, "'Because you have done this, "'cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. "'You will crawl on your belly, "'and you will eat dust all the days of your life. "'And I will put enmity between you and the woman "'and between your offspring and hers.' he will crush your head and you will strike his heel. To the woman he said, I will make your pains in childbearing very severe. With painful labour you will give birth to children. Lucy, you can tell us about that. Your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. To Adam he said, since from it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you will return. Adam named his wife Eve because she would become the mother of all living. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. And the Lord God said, the man is now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. So the Lord God banished him from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. After he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim, and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. Let's hear what uh, Peter brings to us from this message today.
1: Well, good morning church. I'm so sorry that I can't be with you this morning. I wish I could be, but we're in isolation here in the Chapman house at the moment. So the best I can do is to come to you via the video screen this morning. I'm very excited to be walking our way through Genesis chapter 3. It is a tragic chapter of the Bible. It is, of course, a story of the fall and it tells us why our world is, is so messed up. A minister was out visiting members of his parish one day and he was knocking at one particular parishioner's door, not getting any answer. But he knew someone was home. He could tell someone was home, but he wasn't getting any answer at the door. So he took out a business card and wrote on the back of it, Revelation 3.20 and popped it in the crack of the door there. Well, the following Sunday, he noticed his card had been returned to him in the offering, but with on the reverse side of his card, the verse Genesis 3.10 written on it. Well, he had a bit of a chuckle to himself because the verse that he wrote Revelation 3:20 says, "Behold, I stand at the door and knock." But the person who he was visiting had written on the back Genesis 3:10, which says, "I heard your voice in the garden, but I was afraid, for I was naked." this is a story of being uh, naked and afraid sadly this tragic story of the fall in genesis chapter 3 if you would like to follow along i'm going to be going through verse by verse today it's a little bit different from what i would normally do but it's such a wonderful verse so much richness and depth in there if you want to follow along verse by verse it might be great if you've got it open in front of you either in a hard copy or in a digital copy but let's let's dive into genesis chapter 3. firstly in verse 1 why on earth is there a crafty serpent in paradise what's he doing there Um, the author of genesis doesn't give any uh, any backstory as to how this wily serpent came to be There in this garden, in this paradise, but other scriptures do. Remember to take the Bible as a whole and to allow scripture to interpret scripture. Books like Ezekiel and Isaiah do give us a little bit of background as to how this serpent comes into being. And in fact, Revelation, the final book of the Bible, in chapter 12, says, The great dragon was hurled down. That ancient serpent called the devil or Satan, who leads the whole world astray, was hurled down to earth and his angels with him. So I think this is helpful context. At some earlier point it seems that Satan rebelled against God and he's hurled down to earth and we find him here in the garden in the form of a serpent. And it seems he's continuing his rebellion against God by tempting the people that God had made in his own image to also rebel against their Creator. But why does God even allow him in the garden in the first place? Why does God even allow evil? That's a really big, tough question. We're not going to be able to answer that huge question here this morning. But firstly, I do think it's helpful, however, to acknowledge that there is some mystery to God. If you could understand God, would he really be a God worth worshipping? Uh, there are some deep and hidden things that we don't understand this side of heaven. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, the famous love passage of the Bible that I quoted last week, in fact, says that, well, for now we only see reflection as in a mirror. We only see in part, but soon we will see face to face. Uh, remember, a, a mirror in ancient times was just a bit of polished metal, not very clear at all. So it was Paul's way of saying, well, we don't really see things clearly, but one day we will. We don't always understand yet but we have to have trust in God. One day we will fully see clearly. Uh, The great theologian R.C. Sproul says, uh, If God allowed evil to enter into his universe, it could only be by his sovereign decision. Since his sovereign decisions always follow the perfection of his being, we must conclude that his decision to allow evil to exist is a good decision. So we know for certain that God is sovereign, that God is all-knowing, that God is good, he's a perfect God. He cannot do evil and he didn't create evil and he does not tempt man to do evil. And we also know that his grace is sufficient for me, 2 Corinthians chapter 12 verse 9. So I think we need to submit to God's truth knowing that God has it in hand, knowing that Adam and Eve and the serpent, that this story wasn't a cliffhanger. For God, It's not like one of those movies where you're biting your nails, peeking through your fingers, wondering what's going to happen. It wasn't like that for God. God knew how things were going to work out. In fact, in Revelation chapter 13, verse 8, we read that Jesus is called the Lamb who was slain from the creation of the world. So from the very foundation of the world, God had a rescue plan for us. This is not plan B for God. In fact, his rescue plan of reconciling mankind back to himself is hinted at right here in Genesis chapter 3. We'll get to that in a minute, but we're only still only in in verse 1. The, The very first thing that the serpent says here at the end of verse 1 is he says to the woman, Did God really say? See, the serpent is immediately casting doubt on God's word. And see how the serpent immediately twists and distorts God's word. He tries to suggest that God uh, told Adam and Eve not to eat from any tree in the garden and this is clearly not true. In fact, quite the opposite is true of what God said. Back in chapter 2 in verse 16 uh, God tells them that they are free to eat from any tree in the garden except from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Don't forget that the tree of life was there as well. There's two trees in the garden, two special trees, the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But The tree of life was not forbidden. They were, all these trees were good and pleasing to the eye. So it's not as if uh, this is the, the one good pleasing tree, this, this forbidden tree. God had given them an abundance in the garden. Yet Satan plants the idea in their mind that God might be withholding something from them, something good. And I think Satan still uses this tactic. Did God really say? Did he actually say that? And and note this too, Church. The serpent didn't tempt Adam and Eve to murder, or to steal, or to lie, or to cheat. Simply to question the Word of God. Dear Church, please know that his tactics haven't changed. Like Adam and Eve, we too question and push and and distort his good life-giving boundaries today. God gave these two one healthy boundary amidst paradise. I heard a good modern day parable, a good modern day description of what's going on here in the garden. It's like one of those fancy public swimming pools with a a water park up one and with slippery dips and, and water buckets. And the kids are told, you do whatever you want, but just don't go down the deep end where the adults are swimming laps. But of course, what? Do some kids always want to do? They're always peering over the rope, thinking that they're missing out on something, wanting to go where they shouldn't. But of course, the reality is that when they're doing that, that's when they're missing out. They could be enjoying the marvelous space that's been provided for them, but instead they're looking somewhere else that's been a boundary that's been given for them for their own protection. God's boundaries that He puts in place are for our flourishing. So I think our first chapter from this lesson is that God can be trusted. Even when he withholds something for us, he's doing so out of love. Far from withholding pleasure, God is in fact protecting us. Now I know it doesn't feel like that sometimes. But even when God is giving us boundaries, he's doing so out of his great love for us, he knows best. And he has the right to determine what is right and wrong, what is good and true. It's his world. He created it. But our human state rebels against that and thinks, well, I don't think I need that rule. I I reckon I know better. It's incredibly arrogant. So the question for each of us today is, will I submit to God's authority for my life? Will I submit to his good life-giving boundaries for my life? Now in verses 2 and 3 the woman responds to the serpent and things don't get much better where the serpent twists god's word eve actually adds to them saying that he he told them that they must never even touch the fruit rather than simply just eat it i think just we too do the same thing to god's word we sometimes add to it we go beyond what he actually says we inadvertently make things up that aren't really even there So, Church, can I encourage us to stick to God's Word, what's actually written, no more and no less. And then in verse 4, as the rain comes down outside, I hope you're all safe and warm and dry there at Church in the Marketplace this morning. Uh, The serpent responds to Eve in verse 4. And note the progression in his tactics here. He's moved from questioning God... To outright contradicting God now he openly lies at this point he says God you he says to Eve you certainly will not die he's called the father of lies for very good reason is he, he starts here in verse 5 with a very well crafted lie that like all good lies contains a grain of truth you will not die verse 6 uh, well here we see a valuable lesson here we see what happens uh, when sin is allowed to progress. The woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good and pleasing to the eye. She also saw that it was desirable for gaining wisdom. Then she took some and ate it. Then she gave some to her husband who was with her, who also ate it. So here we see a progression. Note the progression here in Eve's sin. Firstly, she sees it and sees that it's something that she, she wants. Then she desires it. Then she takes it and then she shares it, i.e. invites someone else to share in her sin. I think this is really good instruction for us. As we are tempted. we'll firstly see something that looks desirable. Social media is terrible for this. It's an incredible source of envy and lust of our age. Comparison to others is extremely dangerous and and unproductive. I saw a quote from another preacher, Stephen Furtick, a popular American preacher, who nailed it on this particular topic. He said, the reason we struggle with insecurity is because we compare our behind the scenes with everybody else's highlight reel. Isn't that true? And Eleanor Roosevelt uh, the wife of the great American uh, President Roosevelt said, no one can make you feel inferior without your consent. And another American president, one of my favorites, Teddy Roosevelt, a great environmentalist, in fact, said comparison is the thief of joy. I love that. Comparison is the thief of joy. Note also in verse six here that it says that her husband was with her. What? What's going on here? Adam was with her the whole time. Now, now that what's happened here thus far is on Eve, but, but what is Adam doing? Here's another point of application for us. The only thing necessary for evil to triumph is for good men to do nothing. Edmund Burke famously said that the great statesman and philosopher and economist, the only thing necessary for evil to flourish, for evil to triumph, is for good men to do nothing. And that's what's happening here. This goes back to some of what I was saying last week about the need for men to man up and I think when you look around what's happening in the world today I reckon what we really need is, is men to, to man up. It's the cause of so many problems in our in our world today. Adam sits idly by while Eve eats the fruit. Now she doesn't die immediately so he eats it too. this is why the serpents lie that you will not die, such a crafty one. For a brief moment, it seems to Adam as though the serpent might be right, but it only lasts for a moment because look at verse 7. Their eyes are open, but they see that they are not like God. Instead of making them like God as they were promised, the fruit reveals how unlike God they are. Suddenly, their bodies are a glaring, painful reminder of their creatureliness, their createdness, their creaturehood, and indeed their attempted rebellion. And now mankind is embarrassed, ashamed of our bodies. Sin and shame continue to skew how we see our bodies sadly. This is really heartbreaking stuff because our bodies are a wonderful gift from God. Think of all the wonderful things we get to do with our bodies. We get to enjoy food, we get to play sports, we get to do meaningful work with them, we get to hug each other. We get to have sex in our bodies. Our bodies give, literally give birth to, to new life. We get to wrestle the dog, do all sorts of wonderful things within our, in our bodies. I recently read of another minister who when a member of his, of his church buys a new house, he goes into the house and blesses it and prays over it and he pauses at the mirror in the bathroom And he prays that the people in this house might see themselves as they truly are seen by God, not by how they might relate to their bodies by the categories of this world, rather according to the truth of who they are in Christ. What a great idea. I might start doing that myself. Our bodies are a gift and not to be compared to each other or lamented when we feel the effects of sin. Particularly looking at you women, you know that those women in those magazines are not real. I mean, apart from being the 1% who actually fit that crazy stereotype, you realise they even they have been airbrushed. They're not human. Stop comparing yourselves to them. So sadly, Adam and Eve quickly become self-conscious and self-absorbed. And where they were once in an open, wonderful, unhindered relationship with God and with one another, now their eyes have turned in. They've turned in on themselves. Think just for a moment about all the really wonderful life-giving moments in your life and think about how they all involve self-forgetfulness. Think of when you are caught up in the beauty of creation or when you're at a, a huge concert or a sporting event or maybe think about the birth of your child or a really in-depth one-on-one conversation with someone. In those moments, aren't you always focused outwardly rather than inwardly? I learned to uh, paraglide a few years ago. I learned the skills and finally jumped off a cliff down at Stanwell Tops with a, a tandem flight. There are all sorts of gawky tourists gawking at me and laughing at this beginner uh, taking photos, but I didn't give a jot because I was so caught up in the moment, so caught up in the wonder of creation, what I was doing, I couldn't care less about what anyone else thought of me. Let's make sure uh, that we are doing our best to not be casting our eyes inward, worried about what other people think, but simply to cast our eyes outward to the beauty of creation, looking to love and to serve and to be with those that, that God has placed around us this is terribly sad news what's happened here in in genesis 3. in fact it's, it's it's tragic and if you don't feel the tragedy of the fall if you don't know what's going on here then you're not really going to understand you're not really going to grasp the power of the gospel you're not really going to understand the good news of jesus christ i won't have any lasting appeal to it. if you can't see just how tragic this fall really is about how tragic this fallen state of the world truly is. Now let's have a look at verses 8 to 11. God comes walking into the scene. God's apparently walking around the garden at this point, and he's walked in on this scene. He's like a parent walking in on a child that has broken a vase, wondering, now what's happened here? Now God knows, of course, but he's given Adam the opportunity to, to come clean and to fess up. But look at verse 12. Adam attempts to shift the blame. He tries to shift responsibility, not only onto Eve, but onto God himself. I mean, can you believe this guy? Uh, Notice the shift as well from back in chapter two, uh, where he said of Eve, of his beautiful wife, well, thank you, Lord, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. What an awesome partner. I mean, she's naked after all. What's not to like? He's gone from that to, oh, Lord, I knew this woman you gave me is going to be trouble. Like I said last week, One of the really big flaws in manhood to this day is weak, insipid men who don't take responsibility. They don't take responsibility for themselves, for their actions, don't take responsibility for their own spiritual growth, for their families, for their church, and for their world. They just selfishly, inwardly do whatever they want, and it's devastating. Adam, in one blow here, has betrayed both Eve and God by trying to blame them rather than taking responsibility. We really need godly men to step up and take responsibility for their church in this new post-COVID chapter of history. In verse 13, Eve tragically does the same thing. She too tries to blame, shift, um, rather than going straight to repentance. And in verse 14, God issues his punishment. He starts issuing his punishment, starting with the serpent. And I find this really intriguing. It seems that the serpent did not always slither along the ground. This verse implies that he was an upright creature prior to the fall. If you ever look back at those passages from Ezekiel and Isaiah, or have a look at how he's described in various passages, you'll see that he was a beautiful creature before he rebelled against God. And I think this makes sense that Eve would be tempted by a beautiful creature rather than a slithering, slimy thing with a forked tongue. In my mind's eye, I pictured the sort of the serpent underwent a similar sort of transformation to Gollum from the Lord of the Rings, this once healthy, beautiful, upright creature, and is now horribly disfigured and hunched over as a result of sin. So let's not grow numb to the tragedy of this familiar passage, to the tragedy of sin, and in doing so grow numb to the extraordinary good news of the gospel. But now try to put yourself in Adam and Eve's shoes at this point. They've sinned, they've been caught out. And now they see what this once beautiful creature has happened to him. He's slithered away on his belly. Uh, Adam and Eve must have been wondering at this point, Oh no, what have we done? And what's in store for us? So in verse 15, we discover more devastating consequences of sin. There'll be enmity, hatred, ill will between the woman's offspring and that of the serpents. You will strike at his heel, but he will crush your head. So even here, even here, even immediately following the fall, we see God's rescue plan, the good news, the gospel taking shape. We get the first promise of a redeemer. This verse even has a fancy theological term. It's called the proto evangelion, or the first gospel. Eve hears that she will have children. And she hears that one of her offspring will crush the serpent and that, in doing so he will be wounded. This is also the first prophecy in the Bible. And in verse 16, Eve is told of the physical pain that is coming her way in childbirth. And we even learn that the biological differences between men and women, that were meant to bring delight and joy and completeness, is now going to be a source of contention where there will now be an ongoing struggle between the man and the woman. And sadly, men will dominate, says God. Christian author Hannah Anderson puts it wonderfully this way, to compensate a woman may be tempted to capitalize on the one thing they have that men want. A Woman may not be as physically powerful as a man, but she alone has the capacity to bear life. Her fertility, and by extension her sexuality, is a potential source of power. Because men desire her, she will be tempted to objectify herself, to capture their attention. Instead of deriving her worth, value and authority from being made in God's image, she will be tempted to deride it from men. How sad, how tragic. Where there was once one flesh, completeness, partnership, now there's friction and tension. There's competition as men and women use their bodies to compete, and to threaten, and to coerce, and to manipulate. Now just my will against yours. This is devastating stuff, church. So in verses 17 and 18, sadly for Adam, God curses the ground. Rather than it being a source of blessing that it was meant to be, it's now going to be a source of great hardship and grief for Adam. And in verse 19, we learn that Adam will return to the ground from which he came. Death has now entered the world. His physical death wasn't immediate, but it is now certain. Look, as I tell people at every funeral that I do, death was never part of God's plan. It wasn't part of his plan for creation. It's not natural. In verse 21 we see garments of skin being made which means that an animal has now died this is the first sacrifice the blood of something innocent has been shed to cover sin and shame is any of this ringing any bells for you I hope that it is this is a huge hint towards God's rescue plan the seeds of redemption are sown right back here in Genesis there is one coming from Eve who will defeat the serpent he'll be innocent Yet his blood will be shed to cover sin and shame. So in verses 22 to 24, they are banished from the garden, from the tree of life. The tree of life is, of course, symbolic of eternal life, which is why we also see it in Revelation. But now humankind is tragically deprived of it. This is terrible news. We are in exile now. We are exiled from God's presence, from fullness of life. We are no longer at home. We see this over and over in Scripture. Think of the exile down in Egypt or to Babylon. And later the Apostle Peter would write to churches calling them exiles, calling them believers, foreigners in the world. Follower of Jesus, this world is not your home. So don't get too comfortable here. We were created to live in God's presence. Sin has sadly messed it up. Yet God is faithful and will complete what he started. He won't abandon us. God doesn't abort his plan the world simply because sin entered the world he has a plan to mend and to heal that which is broken to close in a sense I want you to see how the Bible is in fact a story of two Adams two gardens and two trees paradise is lost through the first Adam and his disobedience but through the last Adam as 1 Corinthians 15 calls Jesus that great resurrection chapter of the Bible paradise is regained through Jesus' perfect obedience. Romans chapter 5, verse 17 says, For if by the trespass of one man death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and of the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? Awesome. Praise God. In the Garden of Eden, man did not submit to God's will and sin and death entered. In the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus, the final Adam, the last Adam, did submit to his Father's will. In fact, he said, didn't he, not my will be done, but yours, Father. And note the contrast here between these two Adams. Note the contrast between Adam's selfishness and Jesus' selflessness. And Jesus did not take from a tree. He was hung on a tree, wasn't he? Wickedness and sin and evil is laid upon the one who is infinitely good and thus sin and death are defeated. The curse of sin and death are reversed. I want to leave you this morning by showing you a a fresco from a medieval Byzantine church in modern-day Istanbul by the name of the Korah Church. Uh, The Ottoman Empire, if you know the history, took over what, what was then Constantinople. And converted the churches into mosques and due to the prohibition in Islam of iconic imagery, uh, many of the great frescoes and, and mosaics were plastered over. But in the last century a restoration program took place that unearthed this magnificent mosaic. It's titled the Anastasis which means resurrection. It shows Jesus pulling an old man and an old woman out of tombs. Friend, that old man is Adam, and that old woman is Eve, and that shadowy figure under his feet is Satan. The fall was devastating, and we all share in it. None of us are blameless, but God's rescue plan for humanity is all the more amazing. Death has been defeated. Up out of the grave we will arise uninhibited relationship with God and with each other will one day be restored and we will dwell in his glorious presence forever. Hallelujah. So friend, can I encourage you to submit to God's good life-giving rule for your life today. Amen.